Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Children of the night, come on into the cabin and settle on in. Things have been warm and rainy around these parts of Virginia. I'm glad you could make it. We have two stories for you this evening. First up will be a story from Liam Hogan. Liam is a London-based writer and host of the award-winning monthly literary event, Liars League. He was a finalist in SciFest LA's Roswell Award 2015 and has work published in Leap Books' Beware the Little White Rabbit, Hashtag Alice 150 Anthology, and in Sci-Fi Journal. More at happyendingnotguaranteed.blogspot.co.uk. Link will be in the show notes. And now, Liam Hogan's Kingdom. I've been counting the days, and yet, when the light of the rising sun spills through the narrow cleft in the steep escarpment, as it does every year at this time, my stomach still twists itself into knots. I take one last look over my kingdom, the single valley, bounded on three sides by mountains, and on the fourth by a small lake that empties out into a deep ravine, before hurriedly descending to the great hall to conduct the morning census and allocate the day's tasks. I count twenty-three men, twelve women, and two, no, three children. There used to be more. More men, more women, more children. My wife, the queen, is not present. Some days she clings to my side, never more than a pace away from me. Today is not one of those days. Today, she is in bed, racked with fear. She, too, has been marking the passage of time, and though it grieves me to see her this way, I must leave her to battle her own demons. 
I have much to do, and little time to do it. I must prepare for our visitor. The woodchopper's assistant was also not at the census. I check on him after lighting the fires in the kitchen. He's feverish, and in his delirium he cries out in a guttural, foreign tongue. I dress his wound, but there is little else I can do for him, and the stench of decay foretells his doom. I wonder if there will be another brave enough to take his place. It is, at least, a worry for another day. There is wood enough for the feast, and I have given the woodchopper other duties. Around noon, the bell by the lake rings, a short, impatient peal, and I carefully hand the sharp knife to one of the three cooks. King Ulfred, our neighbor in every direction and for many leagues beyond, is early. I hurriedly wash my hands and throw the fur-trimmed robe around my shoulders. By the time I swing open the heavy oak doors, he is already there, bounding up the steps, lustily pulling on a rope. Nathaniel, he cries, greetings, old friend. I bring you new subjects. I mumble my thanks as he hands me the tether, and the three men attached fall to their knees cringing and forlorn. I rub the scarred tissue above my eye patch distractedly. Two of them will not, I think, last the next spring. The third, though his head is bowed, holds his shoulders erect despite the heavy pack he's carrying. The board around his neck proclaims him to be a counterfeiter. Very well. Let us hope he's good with his hands. King Ulfred claps me on the shoulder. He's beaming, his cheeks rosy from the row across the lake. A fine spring day. I should warn you, I've worked up quite an appetite. How fares the feast? Ulfred descends upon us each year at the spring equinox, when the ice has melted and the mountain lambs are young. He likes his lamb milk-fed, barely a month old. To my mind, the meat is too lean and the cost to our small herd too high. But they are the king's favorite. And so half a dozen of our precious lambs are crammed into the ovens and onto the spits. A glut of meat, of which only the choicest will be offered to Ulfred. It is uh, <clears throat> still being prepared, my liege. Perhaps some mutton stew while you wait? He screws up his face. I didn't come here for stew, Nathaniel. A refreshing goblet of water, and then let us beat the bounds. We have much to discuss, fellow king. He gives me a narrow look, and I silently berate myself for my careless slip. My liege is not how kings refer to one another. Ah, uh, certainly, King Ulfred, I say as I pour his drink. I'll just check on the kitchen. He downs the goblet and casts it aside. Come now, I'm sure they can do without your ministrations for an hour, and I have need of your expert knowledge. 
We talk about his campaign in the South, and his need to raise funds. I advise against the grain tax he proposes. Last year's harvest was not a good one, and suggest a few alternatives. He harumphs and says he'll think about it. I fall silent. I was his advisor once, a trusted and loyal subject, my judgment valued, until pride got the better of me, and I began to think that my wisdom was such that I could do a better job than the king himself. <laughs> my pitiful coup collapsed before it had even begun. Too close to the court, I misjudged the level of fear that the king inspired outside of it. I know that fear now. I had thought my life forfeit. Instead, it amused the king to banish me to this make-believe kingdom, along with my co-conspirators and our families. A lesson for others foolish enough to contest his might. The day is warm, and as we walk the thin trail that skirts the valley, I slip the robe from my shoulders and carry it over my arm. King Alfred tuts. Nathaniel, your shirt is threadbare, and by the look of the needlework you must have darned it yourself. Perhaps I should send you my tailor? I shrug, neither accepting nor rejecting his offer wondering what the tailor has done to displease him. <laughs> Perhaps no more than the ox Ulfred sent when I asked for help to plow the fields. The beast mewling in terror and bucking at the slightest touch. Had it done anything to justify being the butt of the king's cruel humor? We passed the ruins of the stables. Improvements? He asks, raising an eyebrow. A uh, fire, I reply simply. Any casualties? He seems eager for the gruesome details. I nod. Seven. It took hold too fast for them to escape. We... Also lost the ox. <laughs> A lie. The ox was dead long before the disaster that followed the first of the winter snows. Hmm, a shame. King Alfred shakes his head. They were fine stables. You will rebuild them, I hope. I look at him aghast. It was not a question. Was it an order? He's holding my gaze, the smile frozen. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, now that the weather is better, I fluster. Good. I do so enjoy our walks, Nathaniel. It is such a pleasure to be without my usual retinue, even if it is only for an hour. And it warms the heart to see what a fine king you've turned out to be. Long may you reign, eh? I shudder, a momentary weakness. But the king's back is turned and he fails to notice. We're at the rear of the hunting lodge that serves as my castle, near the kitchens, and the smell of roast meat fills the air. Ah, now I am truly ravenous, he says, licking his lips. Let's eat.
King Alfred inhales deeply from the plate of tiny lamb chops. There's little to go with it. The last of the winter root vegetables, a few leeks, but he ignores these anyway. Exquisite, he says as he pops a morsel of moist pink meat into his mouth. I'm really not sure the wine I've brought will do it justice. I eye the bottle enviously, and he laughs and pushes it across the table. Here, for you and your lovely queen. The queen seizes hold of my hand, her grip fierce. I wait a moment, but she says nothing, and as her grasp weakens, I fill and pass her the goblet. She takes it eagerly, quickly draining the blood-red liquor, a thin dribble escaping down her chin. King Ulfred watches intently and calls for another bottle, but the queen ignores the refill, and Ulfred shrugs in disappointment and starts his feast in earnest. I sip my wine cautiously and watch him eat, remembering tales my wife once told me of exotic poisonings the king employed to dispatch his enemies. When he finally pushes back from the table, a satisfied look on his face, his plate is brimming with the slender white curves of stripped bones. I do believe I might have broken my record. <laughs> Perhaps the queen will do me the honor of counting? The queen stiffens, clenching her jaw. Then, after a long moment's pause, she slowly reaches out to the plate I have placed in front of her and begins, her lips moving silently. Thirty-eight is all she says when she removes the last bone. King Alfred strokes his grease-slicked beard. Thirty-eight, eh? <laughs> Two more than last year. My compliments to your cooks, he says. And now, I have a gift for you. A gift, I echo in trepidation. The king's largesse is not to be trusted. The king roots through the packs that were brought with him, pulling out a small parcel wrapped in white muslin. I open it gingerly and then stare like a fool at the tiny embroidered tunic contained within. Fit for a prince, no? And where is the little tyke? Your majesty, I begin and then quickly stop. Come now, you think I did not notice that the queen was with child on my last visit? King Ulfred waits until my head slowly dips in reluctant confirmation. So, you have a child, a joyous occasion, and one to be celebrated. A boy, I trust. Bring him to me. The queen makes as though to stand, but I squeeze her thigh under the table, and she shrinks back into her chair. I call for the woodchopper. The wait seems eternal before he enters, gently shielding the infant. I stand, and I take the smiling babe from his scarred arms. King Ulfred is at my side, and quickly takes my burden from me, holding the small bundle aloft. 
a bonny child, and such beautiful eyes, his mother's, I believe. There's a quiet sob from the queen, and then Alfred hands the child back. You're a lucky man, Nathaniel. You have what God in his infinite wisdom has denied me, an heir. Three wives, all young, one distinctly comely, and not a single blessed child. Alfred reaches to his belt and pulls a dagger from its sheath, laying it down on the table next to his empty goblet. For a while, I thought I might groom a successor anyway. Some brilliant young man, plucked from obscurity, humbled by the unexpected honor, grateful for the opportunity. Not, as it turns out, one of my brightest ideas. I stare down at my feet until I feel his grip on my shoulder, and I slowly raise my head to look into his impassive face. As you know, Nathaniel, you owe me an eye. And I think it is time to collect, don't you? <laughs> but I am not an unreasonable man. I will let you keep your sight, if you offer me another's. Perhaps someone not yet tainted by your betrayal. The screams have finally stopped. The child has exhausted itself and sleeps fitfully. At long last, the hall is silent, littered with the remains of the feast that none dare clean up. I do not know where the queen is. She wasn't to be seen when I returned from escorting Ulfred back to the lake. That was hours ago. Hours of pacing the slowly darkening hall, rocking my son back and forth as I held his tiny grasping hands away from the blood-stained bandage wrapped around his head. How much can you be punished for one stupid mistake? And what if the sacrifice isn't yours? What if it continues year after year after year? Sometimes, sometimes the sacrifice cannot be borne, and I dread what I might find when I seek out my wife. Should I have wrestled the dagger from the king, or allowed him to take my sight rather than that of my infant son? But what then? When Ulfred next visits shortly after the lambs are born, should I poison his meat in suicidal vengeance? I shake my head, blinking the tear away. These are not options open to me. I have a duty to perform, and though it rips my soul from me, it is not one I can shirk. I do not have the luxury of escape. My subjects and my wife and my son, if he survives that long, 
They can choose for themselves whether they live or die. But not I. For if I die, they all die too. Unsighted, they cannot survive long without me. Thus I am destined to remain. The reluctant king in this, the land of the blind. That was Liam Hogan's Kingdom, read by Devin McLaughlin. Devin is a man from southern Ontario who has a harder-than-normal time of writing about himself from the third-person perspective. Also, he sometimes narrates things. Should you be interested, you can follow his narration work by carefully peering into his bedroom window at night. Devin just asks that you please keep it down as people inside are trying to sleep. Thank you, Devin. Our next story comes from Alice Frances Wickham. Alice Wickham is a modern-day vampire. At night, she explores the world of witches and demons under the flicker of candlelight. Her strange work has appeared in out-of-print magazines, most recent being Nazar Look, a bilingual journal for readers and writers in English and Crimean Tatar. Alice's work has appeared in Edge magazine. She holds an M.A. in creative writing from London University. Feeling duty-bound to haunt the world she has begun, sending out her work in earnest. With the minds oriented towards dark, cynical, and macabre themes, Alice's passion is death in the afterlife. Unwanted Guests is a horror story. The idea is based on a house in southeast London that Alice once inhabited along with other creatures of the night. As a kid, growing up in Dublin, Alice was a fan of Bram Stoker's Dracula, Sheridan La Fanu's Camilla, and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Her taste hasn't changed much since then. In her non-spare time, Alice runs an independent literary agency for new and emerging writers. Why not pay her a visit at newlondonwriters.com? Alice can also be found at thepublicreviews.com, writing under the name of Alice Francis. Link to both will, of course, be in the show notes. And now we will hear Alice Francis Wickham's Unwanted Guests. Here they come, back from their outing. Two sullen baby-faced teenage boys, with their rough, cunning and secretive eyes, and their French mamas. This house is supposed to be haunted, and yet it has become a veritable hostel shamelessly lending itself to such tourist types. The kitchen is filled to the brim with their shit, their cheeses and apples, coffee and beurre, their sweet little amber-coloured cakes. The scent of duty-free perfume filters the air, wafting generously. I envy their bourgeois simplicity, their delight in scoring a free trip to London under the auspices of their conniving relative our other long-term occupant, the one we call the caretaker, the one who thinks he owns this house. He brazenly handed them the key and invited them to stay under this roof, which is, I hasten to add again, not even his roof. Malik and I have lived in this house for a very long time. Malik says it feels like centuries. 
Malik moved in first, following a disastrous episode with his Algerian lover, an episode from which he is still recovering. I moved in next, coming out of the abyss of nowhere. I was drinking heavily and needing somewhere to call home. Malik and I occupy the whole of the top floor of the house. Then along came Alberto, gay, unemployed and HIV positive. He took up the empty room on the first floor. We are all, in a sense, convalescents, and this house is our sanctuary. The other rooms are occupied by the caretaker and his frequent guests. We can't abide him, but we must tolerate him for the sake of peace and quiet, and also because the rent is so minimal, virtually non-existent, in fact. Still, as far as we're concerned, we have certain rights as tenants. None of us was asked or even warned that La Famille would descend en masse like locusts chewing up all the spare rooms, dominating the kitchen, the dining room and the garden. I hear them now, fat with life, clucking away in the garden and chuckling, if you can chuckle in French. Malik and I see that they're enjoying the tranquillity of the house, away from the perennial chaos of the city. And we're not happy about it. The only one who knew about their impending arrival was Malik, whose ears are constantly poised like antenna for the nearest hint of invasion. I sit in my room listening, envying, wondering what it would be like to inhabit their skin. Malik sits in his brooding and sulking and willing them to leave. Malik, sly, shy, nearing a theatrical forty. He forever wonders, will he, like Bogey, make his name overnight, striking gold and fame at last? His long black hair and pretty boy looks have ferried him along as a barman and waiter in Covent Garden. At times, Malik's ridiculous ego knows no bounds. He still brags that he could make a fortune in Paris, where male and female celebrities have offered to pay him a very generous reward in return for his discreet and elegant services. He vows to leave London as soon as he's earned enough money for six months' rent on a small studio in Paris. Which shouldn't take long, he says. All fantasy, of course. Alberto and I know only too well that he's never had the guts to leave this once private oasis. He made sure to take the finest room in the house. Unlike our bare quarters, his room has a certain class, a leather-bound desk, an antique mirror, dark wood floorboards that seem to go on forever, and a tall, wide oak wardrobe that conceals his costumes and wigs and other more precarious treasures. Besides, he's far too attached to his much-loved, much-abused old mattress. To leave this den, he would need to tear himself away follicle by follicle. And that is something Alberto and I know he's not capable of, yet. So, for the time being, we are all willing prisoners of this Victorian house. It binds us together like wool. I myself never planned on staying here this long. One day, I just dropped by and... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. 
Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Took up the empty space, resigning myself to a quiet existence in this crumbling old stone album of times lost and forgotten. It suited my needs. I felt comfortable with the slightly ruinous appearance. The scarred wood. The creaking staircases, the cracked window panes, even the rustic orange kitchen tiles, that no matter how often Alberto mops, always manage to look greasy and stained. A three-story house, the tall body of the building, a lovable old aristocrat gone to seed, its neglected garden, a pair of much-loved, well-worn shoes. It is a house for polite losers, and naturellement. The family are making good use of the hot running water, the old iron bathtub, the shabby but functional kitchen, the well-worn sofas, and the deep mattresses that, despite all these years of overuse, somehow remain comfortable. They are charmed by the grumble of commuter trains coming from behind the garden wall, and the intermittent rattle of Her Majesty's helicopters scouring the skies for who knows what. These sounds have not yet taken on the mien of perpetual annoyance. These sounds are enticing to their untutored ears. Malik and I remain in stiff, ghostly silence in our rooms, willing the family to bid au revoir. We rarely come out. But when insane chatter fills the hallway and the stairs, I am propelled to venture out of my room and go and knock on his door. Malik pushes past me into the landing and quickly snaps his door shut, as possessive of his privacy as ever. I've already caught sight of what he's feebly trying to protect from prying eyes, the instruments of torture, the iron fetters and chains freed from the closet, destroying the convention of his bedroom. In his hand he wields a small, sharp knife, the sort they call a kitchen devil. I see that a few remaining drops of blood trickle from the new cut he's made on his wrist, but I know better than to comment on his compulsion to cut his body, haunted by his obsession even now. I'm not bothered about Malik's eccentricities. I'm bothered about the Frenchies spreading themselves like a rash over the house. Who needs it? Who the fuck are they, and what are they doing here? I ask Malik. He raises an eyebrow. 
unaccustomed to seeing me so upset. He's not usually one to divulge. Gossiping has been his downfall in the past. But this much he reveals with a sarcastic tone. There is uh, guests, la tout la famille, staying here on a low-budget holiday, rent-free. I can't stand it any more. All these strangers, in, out, in, out. I miss my friends in Paris. You know, I have decided definitely I will go back to Paris in the autumn. Unless, of course, I change my mind. I felt angry. Here he was, fantasizing again. You can't leave the house, Malik. Stop talking rubbish. Malik was furious back, and he jabbed the point of his knife at me. I don't give a shit about the house. I feel like a chien. It is not right. It is not a way to be. I am like a dog in a kennel. To say anything further would be to court disaster. So I left it and slid back into my room. Malik slid back to his, banging his door behind. I was perturbed for quite a while after that. The sooner the better Malik got rid of the notion of going away, then maybe we could settle down and do something about the constant invasions to our privacy. Malik was a strange bird, proud, yet capable of sacrificing himself like a lamb, spending all his money on brutish men who slung him to the ground when they'd finished with him. His last lover, an Algerian con artist from his beloved Paris, cut him up gently little by little, and from those wounds he never recovered. Once, from the window of my room, I watched him kneel as though in prayer beneath the broad, swaying leaves of the sycamore tree. His pose was serene and poetic as he gazed upwards, watching a sparrow returning to her nest. Was it an act of theatre? One week later, we found the tiny white egg lying on the grass and placed it with reverence amongst the ragged strawberry bushes planted a long time ago. Yes, we have our moments of simple pleasure. But we are not happy that La Tula Vami has come to invade this sombre space, polluting it with their gaiety. As the days and nights roll on, Malik is becoming more and more irascible. He is seething. I can tell by his increasing scars, by the way he avoids the stairs, and by his door, which remains locked shut. Meanwhile, I stay in my room drinking heavily, ignoring the pleas of my liver for mercy and snubbing the careful advice once offered by a kindly doctor. I look out of the window and see that the family are having a barbecue in the garden. I see Alberto, painfully skinny and small, sits on the grass spitting into a blood-stained handkerchief. Unnoticed he squats, stubbornly asserting his rights of territory holding his spot on the overgrown lawn, silent yet staunch on the periphery of the family circle. His illness will prevail, and, in the end, he will get up and float away dissatisfied, like the ghost of Hamlet, while the family remain oblivious to his presence. 
The laughter of the boys punctuates the spaces between the talk of their mothers. Skitterish adolescent giggles relieve the occasional unwanted silence as they place the pork sausages and lamb chops upon the flames. The smell of roasting flesh is tantalising. But all the same, if I was dying of starvation, I wouldn't ask for a bite. Nor would I crouch on the grass like a beast, protecting its territory. I prefer to remain hidden in my room, stifling, in this long summer heat, content with my wine and my suffering. Why should I care? After all, Malik, Alberto and me, we're troopers in this game of invasion. Long after the family have gone, folded their sheets and towels, hurriedly scribbled their note of thanks and taken their car to the airport, we three will remain, perhaps forever, soundlessly occupying this space. I watch them, until the air grows colder and they start to grow tired. Bit by bit their voices die out. Pretty soon they'll pack up and go inside. They yawn and discuss their day. What have they seen? Tower of London? Buckingham Palace? The Tate Modern? Soho? Maman has a strange headache. Pierre is feeling out of sorts. Too much ancient history for one day, perhaps. I'm still watching them when Alberto knocks at my door and makes a sharp announcement. Malik and I are having a meeting. Join us in the kitchen at twenty-one hundred hours. Typical Alberto. Likes to imagine he's an officer in the army giving orders. I wave him away. But decide it's in my interest to attend, if only to see what they're up to. When I arrive, Malik and Alberto are sitting at the kitchen table, looking like gleeful, over-excited schoolboys. We've had enough, says Malik. No more invasions. This is one too many. We need to preempt this crap happening again. Alberto and I have decided to launch an attack on our unwanted guests. Uh, an attack? Listen, says Alberto. It's simple strategy. A strong attack will poison the meat of their enjoyment, and the chances are they'll leave. If this works, then any future invasions will be dealt with in the same way. Our position will grow stronger, and over time, this house will develop a reputation as a stronghold for the likes of us, and we will have no more intruders. It may even be boarded up, which would suit us fine, right? I agree says Malik. We must protect our sanctuary. This house must remain silent and untouched forever. It was hard not to sound scornful. Mm. An attack. Right. Okay. And how do you propose to go about it? Easy, said Malik. First of all, we give them a warning. Then, if they don't respect that, we take stronger measures. Right, Alberto? I felt annoyed at Malik for being so easily influenced by Alberto's cockeyed scheme. It was a sure sign of his desperation. What sort of measures, Malik? 
Have you forgotten, for a start, that they're alive and kicking, and we three are pretty much kaput, and that's putting it mildly. Alberto and Malik exchanged worried glances. There's no need to be insulting about it, said Alberto, with a wounded look, his pride being dented by my remark. A fact is a fact, Alberto. Malik sighed. She's right, Alberto. It's not as simple as it seems. Alberto loosened his tie and ran a finger around the collar of his shirt to loosen that. There is no need to be so pessimistic. As a matter of fact, while you have been steadily drinking like the lush that you are, Malik and I have been practising certain techniques for some time now. Offensive measures are already in place. What do you mean? As you know, Malik has an affinity with metal objects, and he's managed to loosen some metal fixtures on that shelf in there. And I've used certain um, tactics on the cooker. Wait and see. I poured myself a glass of wine. I'd taken the precaution of bringing the bottle downstairs, in case this meeting turned out to be the usual boring twaddle from the clean freak Alberto, about who was not doing their share in the house. And it was usually me who got the brunt of the blame. This was somewhat more interesting, if at the same time totally insane. But Malik and Alberto's excitement was certainly contagious. We waited expectantly for our visitors to return to the kitchen. The family enter, responsible guests, locking the door behind them, securing it with the bolt. The boys disappear up to their rooms, while the women stash away food on the shelves and start filling the sink with soapy water to wash dishes. The first ploy was simple. We watched with and waited in intense expectation. And sure enough, the booby trap placed by Malik succeeded in bringing the loosened shelf crashing down with a large thud and a clatter of rice, salt and sugar. Unruly gray grains spilled out along the surfaces, dancing onto the red tiles and sneaking into their open-toed sandals. Merde! Mon Dieu! They began a frantic sweep and gather, sweep and gather. The boys come hurtling down the stairs. Qu'est-ce que c'est ça? They discuss it interminably, examining the fixture on the wall, looking at it from every angle, puzzled. But it was surely safe. Earlier, okay? No? Oui? Yes, it was tight before. Now, suddenly loose. How strange. How odd. Oh well, it can be sometimes like that. The wood may be a little damp or swollen from the heat, who knows? It's an old house. There are uh, idiosyncrasies. Remember Grandpapa's house? How the doors used to come off the hinges now and then? Oh, yes, I remember well. And the windows got stuck every spring. <laughs> yes, that was funny. Grandpapa trying to open them with a screwdriver, cursing and swearing under his breath. Malik and I grin at one another. This was going better than expected. Now it's Alberto's turn to strike. 
Malik and I watch him close his eyes and concentrate intensely until the cooker springs into life, every gas ring firing up at once. The women are startled and they cling to one another in fright. The boys swing into action, turning the knobs, twisting this way and that, and examining the wiring under the hood. One of them burns his thumb. Ouch! Ouch! They are by turns puzzled, then concerned, then petrified. They back away, uttering words of amazement. The cooker is switched off, and yet the flame grows higher. Alberto opens his eyes again, and the flames evaporate, followed by a powerful smell of gas. Noxious fumes rise through the, throughout the kitchen, and the family become more and more anxious. Dangerous! Might be an explosion! We should ring our cousin, let him know what is happening. We must leave, just in case. It's not safe! Malik claps his hands in glee and grins at Alberto. Fantastic! Well done! Now, turn the thing down a little, my man. Enough is enough. We don't want the house to blow up yet, uh huh? Alberto looks on nervously. When he talks, he stammers. A sure sign he doesn't know what the hell to do. The, uh, the thing is, it, um, it ought to have, um, stopped, but, uh, but, this is a very ancient system. Malik loses it and balls him out. What? You don't know? You worked for a British gas, didn't you? Shit! It was a mistake trusting you, Alberto. You're an incompetent idiot. I feel sorry for Alberto. Malik is being a little too harsh. After all, the ploy worked perfectly. Nevertheless, I had warned Malik about letting Alberto into the household. It was breaking our one golden rule, that clean freak should not be permitted to stay longer than a week. It was one thing to try and carry on as normal, given our condition, but Alberto annoyed us intensely with his constant harangues and neatly written notes pinned up around the house, chastising us for leaving dishes lying on the drainer too long, or for not sweeping the floor properly, attracting mice. In the end, he insinuated himself into this house by blaming his mother for his obsessive compulsive cleaning disorder. Insisting he had nowhere else to turn, he cried and whinged about his family disowning him because of his illness, etc., etc. Malik pitied him. A fellow queer, but I was less inclined to accept him from the start, and now this. The family have come to a decision. Bon, it's not safe to stay. Très bien, we will book rooms in a local bed and breakfast. Not expensive. They go off to start packing their things. On hearing that, Malik sighs with relief and taps a cigarette from his pack and lights it. Pure blue smoke rises to the ceiling in the kitchen. He turns again to Alberto, somewhat mollified. Okay, it worked out. But you're not off the hook yet, Alberto. If this thing goes wrong and the whole house blows, on your head be it. Alberto frowns and zooms over to the cooker, where he flits around examining it carefully. Finally he turns to face us again, his eyes glowing with happiness. 
I understand. The smell of gas is not real. It's a deception. I didn't expect such a thing. This is beyond what I had hoped would happen. Your powers are impressive, I tell him, genuine for once. An olfactory illusion. Not bad. Alberto is overjoyed and receives the compliment like a prize pupil gaining a star from the headmaster. We three watch, attentive as gangmasters, as the family swiftly pack their chattels, not forgetting brushes, soaps, towels, passports, guidebooks, muttering to one another while they stuff, zip and wrap their belongings into suitcases and bags. Something not right? Odd happenings? Strange house. Did you notice how cold all of a sudden? We already have one, Toma. Don't need another. I wonder what she meant by that, says Malik. Malik is leaning against the doorpost to the woman's bedroom, sucking contentedly on his galois, and scrutinising their fashionable outfits. I sit on the bare wooden stairs, sipping my glass of Beaujolais. Alberto stands on the tiles in the hall, his legs wide apart, drooling at the two young men as they roll up their underwear and socks. "'jamming these items into their rucksacks. "'The boys are ready, their rucksacks neatly packed. "'One of them is holding a tabloid. "'Shall we take this, Maman, as a souvenir?' "'No, ma petite, no need. "'Let's not remind ourselves of the bad news.' "'Her son nonchalantly tosses it back on the table in the hallway. "'Malik idly picks up the discarded newspaper to read it. Le Famille are almost ready to depart, but before they go, they conduct a quick inventory of their belongings. Passports? We. Oui. Money? We. Oui. Tickets? We. Oui. Towels, soap, sandals, trainers, cameras and phones? We. Oui. Okay, bon, let's get moving. At the doorway, they hesitate, look at one another, and then, one by one, replace their baggage back down on the cool stone tiles. Malik has finished reading. He has the look of a dog snarling. He flings the newspaper on the floor in disgust as though it were diseased. Alberto and I look at one another perplexed. I pick it up and read slowly struggling to move beyond the words on the page, my mind stalling like a giant automobile faced with a bollard. The youngest boy turns to his cousin. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yes. You, maman? Yes. You, dear aunt? Oui, mon cher. We must remain here where we have been happy these last few days, says the boy's aunt. I agree, says her sister, his maman. I won't have it, shouts Malik, stabbing his cigarette on the tiles, crushing it soundly with the heel of his boot. And me, says the other boy, his cousin. Where is it said to go in the end? No, 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 screams Malik. Alberto looks worried sick. What has upset him? What does it say? 
speechless. I hold out the newspaper for Alberto to examine. Alberto grabs it and reads. His disbelieving eyes trace the words on the page very slowly, and then they read them over again. Finally, with shaking fingers, he neatly refolds the tabloid and gingerly replaces it on the hall table, as though it were a ticking bomb. What does this mean? What do you think it means, you idiot? snaps Malik. It means we have guests, permanent ones. One by one, the family members pick up their bags and begin returning to their rooms, silently, like cats. Malik shouts at them in fury. Where do you think you're going, you lot? The youngest boy, the one they call Pierre, halts on his way up the stairs and turns around in an attitude of listening. Alberto's coughing gets the better of him and his body convulses into a violent jackknifing fit. He struggles to regain his composure. <coughs> you mean they're the ones? Malik takes it out on poor Alberto as if he were to blame for everything. Knock, knock, hello, anybody in? Of course it's them. Who else for Pete's sake? As for me, I remain in a state of shock, struggling to absorb the full meaning of the headlines I have just read. That and the pitiful photographs of the rescue services dealing with a mangled hire car along the motorway. The pictures of the car wreck are interspersed with the happy smiling faces of the two pretty French housewives and their two teenage sons whose lives were tragically snatched in an instant en route back to France. Did you hear that, Maman? His mother peers down the hallway as if seeing us for the very first. Time. Yes, I did. Voices. Two. Maybe more. So we are not here alone? No, ma petite. We are not alone. We appear to have some unwanted visitors. But we'll get rid of them soon. I promise. That was Alice Frances Wickham's Unwanted Guests, as read by Margaret Essex. Margaret Essex lives on the beautiful, far south coast of New South Wales, Australia, with her long-suffering husband, a happy hound, and the cat who rules. She spends her time gardening, seed-saving, cheese-making, making music, and loves to be at a table of food and wine with friends and family. Thank you, Margaret. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night, Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.